0: Hi, I'm Robin Anir, and this is my podcast, Nothing on TV, in which I ransack Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from mostly the 19th century, a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Today's episode is part two of The Marble Man. If you haven't already heard part one, press stop now and go back to part one. Otherwise, keep listening for the rest of the incredible story that began with this snippet from page two of the Bathurst Free Press and Mining Journal on Tuesday, 21st of May, 1889. Orange was thrown into a state of credulous excitement on Wednesday morning by the wild rumour circulated about town that a man's body, completely petrified, had been found. It is alleged it was taken from the marble quarry at Kalula. Now, to continue... The Marble Man, Sala's original, disappeared without a trace. There are hints that he may have been sent to Chicago in 1893 as one of the exhibits representing New South Wales in the World's Columbian Exposition. And that's at least plausible since the squatter who bought him from Sala was a member of the committee charged with selecting colonial exhibits for the Chicago Expo. Sala himself went on developing the quarry at Kalula at least for a year or two. Tallulah marble featured in important buildings in Melbourne and Sydney from that period, so he must have had some success. There was even a suggestion that he would go to Chicago in 1893 to exhibit samples of his building marble. A few years later, though, he was engaged in mining on the Macquarie River and claimed to have found a diamond not far from Orange. And then, nothing. Until May 1903, when a notice appeared in the Orange Advocate. It said, old residents of Orange will feel interested to know that Mr Sala has returned to Orange after touring this terrestrial globe. Mr Sala looks well and, notwithstanding his years, if there are any more marble men about here, they will be discovered. It was just over a year later, in July 1904, that the South Australian Register carried a story that began like this. During the past few days, the minds of several of the scientists engaged at Adelaide University have been exercised over a curious discovery. Yes, indeed, the petrified body of a girl had been unearthed on a vineyard at Beaumont, where the Adelaide Plains meet the hills. The stone figure lay on its back with its knees bent and hands folded across its belly. It was covered with a limestone crust, but the underlying material had all the appearance of, you guessed it, very fine marble. A reporter from the register accompanied a geologist and a paleontologist from Adelaide University to inspect first the discovery site and then the figure itself. And goodness, what a difference 15 years and a change of latitude seemed to make. The vineyard was leased by a hard-working Italian named Peter Salotti, who obligingly lay in the hole from which the figure had been dug, but one look revealed to the experts the impossibility of the mummies having been formed there. The geology was all wrong. Even though they were extremely sceptical, though, the scientists refused to dismiss the authenticity of the fossil until they'd seen it for themselves. Next stop, then, was Mr Salotti's lolly shop in Hindley Street, Adelaide, where the petrified girl was on display. And personal inspection increased one's doubts, wrote the reporter from the Register. The form seems almost too perfect. In fact, when the North Terrace statue, and here he was referring to Canova's Venus, Adelaide's first public artwork, when the North Terrace statue is struck by lightning, the Bell of Beaumont might take her place on the pedestal. Among the chief improbabilities of the petrifaction were the traces of hair on the figure's head, the curve of its backbone and the swell of its belly. True to life, but not to death. As had been the case with the marble man, the perfection of the figure's toenails was much admired. And what a lovely chest, said Mrs. Solotti, who was doorkeeper at the exhibit. I wish I had one like it. It must be thousands of years old. Or else, six weeks old. Just two days after that visit to the lolly shop, the register ran an article headed The Vineyard Mummy, some curious facts, in which were outlined a remarkable string of coincidences, beginning with this one. On June 4th last year, there were in Adelaide two Italians named Sala, father and son. Well, well. It seems they were working now as marble pointers and had roughed out a statue of the explorer John McDowell Stewart, which, in its finished form, was unveiled that day in Victoria Square. Perhaps they'd watched the ceremony and partook of free refreshments. In any case, the Salas had then gone to a stone yard and bought a piece of New South Wales marble. They said they wanted it for doorsteps, but its dimensions closely matched those of the figure now on display in the Hindley Street lolly shop. Sala had arranged to borrow some tools, which were collected and signed for by Mrs C. Salotti. The report in the register concluded, the elder of these two Italians, the Salas, is now in Sydney, but the younger has remained in Adelaide. And there the trail of the Salas goes cold, so that, I figured, was the end of the story. And so it may be, chronologically, but it turns out this is a story that loops back on itself, a snake that bites its own tail. Just listen. In September 1902, less than two years before the Salotti's petrified girl emerged, there had appeared in the Adelaide Advertiser a brief mention of the famed Cardiff giant. You remember him from part one of The Marble Man? the stone figure found in upstate New York in 1869 and poached in effigy by P.T. Barnum? Well, quite recently, said the advertiser, the artist who carved it, G. Fabrizio Sala, has made a clean breast of what he knows about the hoax. So here's how the world worked in 1902, or in 1889, or practically any year before the advent of the internet. Newspaper syndication and the electric telegraph sent stories whirling around the globe in next to no time. It's true. But unless an item actually met your eye, just a line or two of text, perhaps buried in dense columns of close packed print with no such thing as a headline, unless it met your eye, you missed it. It was gone. Like this item from the Adelaide advertiser, it had appeared in a roundup headed American Affairs and gave Sala's name as bold as you like, but 22 months later, Sala and son could turn up in Adelaide with another bogus petrifaction, and nobody thought to connect him with the artist who carved the Cardiff Giant. G. Fabrizio Sala had made a clean breast of what he knew about the Cardiff Giant quite recently, according to the advertiser's US correspondent in 1902. In fact, Sala's involvement in the hopes had been exposed in the US press as early as 1870, when a German stone worker named Moerman told how he and Sala had been hired in Chicago in 1868 to carve a petrified man out of gypsum. Moerman offered to produce affidavits signed by Sala and himself, which would prove the Cardiff giant to be what it is, as every intelligent person knows, a humbug and a swindle. Sala himself spoke with a New York Herald reporter in 1877, when the Colorado stone man, the one with the remnant tail, was on show in New York City. That article is worth quoting at some length. It's headed, The making of stone Man is a regular business, says the manufacturer of the Cardiff Giant. And it goes like this. It lately became known that Mr J Sala, that ought to be a G, not a J, but who knows, perhaps he went by Joe, that Mr Sala, the designer and maker of the celebrated Cardiff Giant, was residing in this city. And as it seemed probable that he might have something interesting to say about the stone man now on exhibition, A Herald reporter called on him yesterday afternoon and entered into conversation with him on the subject of manufacturing human petrifactions. Mr Sala was very frank and outspoken in the matter and displayed photographs of the petrifactions which he said were the work of his own hands. He declared that he was the maker of the Cardiff Giant but refused to give any particulars in regard to it on the grounds that the proprietors had behaved in a very liberal manner to him and that it would be ungrateful on his part to expose them. But, said he, I'll tell you about the New Hampshire Giant. I made that in Boston about six years ago. It was ordered by a man named Lincoln, but he failed to pay me after I'd been working on it some weeks. We took it to a village in New Hampshire and buried it and pretended to discover it, he said, but the men who were with me were careless and suspicion was aroused and we were compelled to take it to Boston where we again exhibited it, but Lincoln, who had originally commissioned it, then claimed a share of the profits on account of his knowledge of the secret and so the exhibition was closed. The last I heard of the figure, this is still Sala speaking, was that it was in New Orleans some months ago, where it was exhibited as a discovery made near Galveston in Texas. The report goes on. In May 1876, Mr Sala stated he was employed by E.J. Dyer and one Ford, both Americans engaged in the stone cutting business, to make a colossal human figure, which was by them exhibited as the petrified body of Finn McCool. So... Here we have Sarla admitting in 1877, that's 12 years before the discovery of the Marble Man, near Orange in New South Wales, to being the proud maker of petrified men on both sides of the Atlantic, including the one that would end up plugging a London bomb crater. Having been to see the Colorado Stone Man on display in New York, he concluded it was the work of the same men who commissioned him to make the petrified Finn McCool, since they are the only people, he says, possessed of the secret of manufacture which was his own invention. He shared with the New York Times some details of his craft. A human figure is roughly chiseled out with due attention to the correct scientific proportions. It is then plunged into a bath of mixed nitric and muriatic acids. This eats away the surface so that no marks of the chisel remain and the whole has a weather-beaten appearance. And what's more, Sala theorised as to methods by which bones might be incorporated into a petrified figure in order to satisfy those scientific types who insisted on cutting out a section. It was possible to insert just the odd protruding bone, he said, or else to embed an entire skeleton in artificial stone, such as the alchemical Scaliola, to which we know Sala possessed the secret. You have to suppose he was just theorising because, well, where would he get an entire skeleton? Well, a funny thing. A couple of years later, we're talking 1879, Sala would surface again, this time in the New York Times, as the exposer of a band of resurrectionists, that is, body snatchers, in the town of Troy in upstate New York. He was born in Italy, said the Times report, and is a man of ability but was a slave to liquor during his residence in Troy. It was a number of years since he'd lived there. He had fallen in with a band of criminals there, one of them a notorious woman, remarkable for her beauty, and they'd consulted him on various schemes based on the disinterment of bodies. Now, 1879, the corpse of a New York department store magnate was missing from its vault, and Sala came forward claiming to know the culprits, though he himself denied involvement owing to a coolness having sprung up between him and the rest of the gang. The story of Sala and the grave robbers also appeared in the Times of London, in a report describing him as a stonecutter and image-maker and the author of certain giant impostures in America and the north of Ireland. But Sala's story seems to have been dismissed as that of a fabulist or a con man. As the New York Times report concluded, it is thought that Sala has told the truth on non-essential and falsehoods on essential points. It would be nine years before Sala turned up in New South Wales, along with his son Edward, who must have been born when his father was living in Troy, perhaps, for all we know, when he was mixed up with that notorious woman. I like this story, the story of Giuseppe Fabrizio Sala and his marble man. I like the weirdness of it, and the way it sprawls and twists and submerges. One exquisite detail that I haven't been able to work into my telling of it is the possibility that whatever else he did or didn't do Sala conducted some kind of trade in bodies from Pompeii. Or not bodies exactly, but those plaster figures cast from the shapes left in the solidified lava by the victims of Vesuvius in 79 AD. You've seen them, I'm sure, in books and museums. Twisted, writhing, cowering figures, captured just as they were when the lava engulfed them. The technique of casting them in plaster was pioneered in Pompeii in 1863. Now, when the Marble Man was making news in Sydney in 1889, a letter appeared in the Daily Telegraph, written by a Signor Bessomo. I have reason, he said, to believe that the Marble Man was a fossil. It seems that Salah had lodged with this Besomo in Sydney for a short time the previous year, and Besomo had conducted correspondence on Salah's behalf with shipping agents in Naples, New York, San Francisco and Honolulu concerning the conveyance of three wooden cases from Naples containing a marble man, woman and child. Now, when the marble in this case meant marble, Bessomo believed the figures to be fossils rather than sculptures, shipped from Naples, the modern-day port nearest to Pompeii. Another Italian resident in Sydney at the time, Oscar Mayer, also suspected the Marble Man of being a cast of a proper petrified man from Italy. And if you take a look at the photos on my show page, particularly those of the Marble Man and the Finn McCool figure, it's not hard to believe that Sala was at least influenced by those bodies cast at Pompeii. Even with all we know of Sala's travels and exploits, Chicago, New York, Ireland, Orange, Adelaide, There's so much more that I haven't been able to discover. Not just where he came from and where he ended up, but where he was between 1896 and 1903 when he was said to have been touring this terrestrial globe. The gaps in Salah's story. You you sense that the missing details are just beyond reach, just awaiting the next tranche of newspapers to be digitised or the further perfection of text recognition software. As it is, searching Trove's historic newspapers for the name Sala invariably turns up every occurrence of the word sale, as in for sale, just about the commonest word to be found in a newspaper, besides the, a and and. One thing that researching this story has brought home to me is just how exceptional Trove's collection of digitised newspapers really is. Not just the extent of it, but that access to it is free. You know, nearly all digitised British and US newspapers are locked up in subscription services and behind paywalls for profit. How far-sighted was the National Library of Australia more than 20 years ago when it began digitising newspapers from big cities, country towns, the lot, with the aim of making them freely available and searchable online? Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio here in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia. The podcast is produced by my longtime literary agent and muse, the hygienic Mrs Bradley. Another friend of the podcast, without whom it might never have reached your earbuds, is Step Forbes, along with his team at Green Graphics, also here in Castlemaine. Step knows everything there is to know about websites and now knows quite a bit about podcasting too. Thanks, Step. You can find more episodes of Nothing on TV on iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn. Why not subscribe while you're there? and have fresh episodes of Nothing on TV appear, like magic, in your podcast feed. And visit my website, robinaneer.com slash TV, or just Google Nothing on TV, for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. You'll find some terrific photos there this time of the Marble Man and Mr Sala's other handiwork. Check them out. Also at my website, you can send me an email And you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you find what you're looking for on Trove and generally to delve into its marvels, just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. Talk to you next time.